we'll go straight to the sermon this morning. It was near the end of the Second World War when a plane carrying 24 members of the U.S. military crashed into the remotest jungle of Papua New Guinea during a reconnaissance excursion. There were three survivors initially suffering from gangrene, from hunger. They were stranded deep in the rainforest in a valley that was notorious for tribes that practiced human cannibalism. We've got a photo of these three survivors, I believe. Could we get that first? Well, at least a couple of them. The army tapped a special battalion of 66 jump-qualified members of the Filipino-American 1st Reconnaissance Battalion, led by C. Earl Walter, Jr. Uh, This battalion's daring motto was Bahala Na, which is a phrase uh, from the Philippines and in Tagalog that can be translated roughly as come what may. And there was only one way to rescue these three survivors. They had to recruit ten volunteers, including two medics, to parachute into the dense jungle and extract the survivors. But it was going to be a very dangerous mission because Walter was standing before his men and giving them potential volunteers four warnings should they sign up. First, Walter told them, the area they'd be jumping into was marked on maps as unknown because they didn't really know what was there. So they'd have nothing but their wits and their compasses to guide them. Secondly, the jungle was so thick that it would be what Walter called the worst possible drop zone. In other words, if you don't get skewered by a tree on the way down and aren't tangled up, you might be gnarled as you collapse and roll down a hillside into a river. Uh, It was not an easy place to land. Thirdly, if they survived the jumps and could find their way around, uh, their band would probably confront uh, the very good possibility that natives would prove to be hostile. They might want to eat you. But Walter saved the worst for last. No one had a plan, even a rough plan, as to how, once they located the survivors, they would actually get out. Because parachutes only go one direction. They go down into the hole. They don't get you climbed back out of the hole. They can drop you on an island. They can't get you off the island. And so from the middle of New Guinea, they would have to hike 150 miles in one direction or another. And if they went to the north coast of New Guinea, they would go through some of the most inhospitable terrain on earth with crash survivors who might be hurt, might be unable to walk on their own. They might have to carry them and to complicate matters. If they hiked north, they'd go through an area that was known for headhunters and cannibals. And if they instead hiked south, they'd pass right through uh, the area of the jungles and swamps that were inhabited by 10,000 Japanese troops. And so death seemed a very strong possibility either way on this mission. And so when Walter finished his litany of warnings, he waited a beat, and then he asked for volunteers 
of the 66 jump-qualified members of the Filipino-American First Reconnaissance Battalion, all 66 of them raised their hands in unison. And then all 66 of them stepped forward as they yelled together, Bahala na, come what may. We've got a photo of these men. These were men who were living their life on mission. They knew their task. They knew their mission. They knew where they were going. They didn't know how they would get there, how they would survive, or who would take care of them, and they didn't care. They were men who were going to face fear square on, right in the face, and say, you are not going to be my master. I know my mission. I know what I must do. I know why I am here, and I am willing to live or die to accomplish that mission. These were men who were living their lives with purpose toward a worthy goal, not for themselves, but for a larger purpose. What about you? What's your mission? Why are you here? Individually, as families, as the church of God, as the family of God, what's your purpose? What's your mission? Why did Jesus put you on this earth? What are you supposed to do? Do you know? Are you, are you wasting your life? Are your, or are your priorities lining up with God's priority, the one who made you and to whom you will ultimately join? After his resurrection from the dead, before ascending to heaven, the Lord Jesus talked to his church. He gathered them together, and he gave them their marching orders. Why you're here, what your mission is, what's your raison d'etre, what's your purpose, why does the church exist, what are we here for, what is our mission? We're going to look at the very closing verses of the gospel according to Matthew In your pew Bible, it's page 1550. This is Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Hear the gospel of Christ. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. We see here the mission mandate of Jesus, where Jesus says, you as the church have one product, one end goal. As an international institution, an organic organism that will spread throughout the planet, There is one product for you to produce. That product is disciples. He says, make disciples. In the Greek, it's the the defining verb. Make disciples of all the nations, of all the goyim, of all the peoples of the earth. He's talking to a, a, a handful of Jewish guys and a handful of Jewish women and telling them, I want you 
to take everybody on the planet from every tribe and tongue and nation on every continent, and I want you to turn them all into Jesus' followers to make disciples of all the nations. That's the mission mandate of Jesus. I want you to make me some disciples. That means a lot of things. Uh, It means... uh, bringing people into the experience of saving grace. He says, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them into the name of the Trinity because that outwardly incorporates them into the spiritual family of God as as sons or daughters of God, as brothers and, and sisters of their fellow Christians, as those whose sins are forgiven and their shame is covered. Jesus has, has carried your burden for you. Therefore, you have experienced his saving grace as he takes all of your guilt and all of your shame and all that's wrong about you. And he takes it and says, I don't want you handling that anymore. I'm going to shoulder that for you. Disciples are people who have experienced the saving grace of Jesus and therefore they are baptized. Disciples are also people who are worshipers of Jesus. Did you notice that when the disciples encountered Jesus on the mountaintop, the risen Lord that even though Jesus was fully human, they also understood that he was God in the flesh, and so they therefore worshipped him, even as some of them doubted. Disciples are people who worship Jesus. To worship Jesus means to, to ascribe all praise and honor and glory to him. It means to look for your satisfaction, your hope, and your significance in him rather than in yourself. It's to say, Jesus, you are the power of powers, and I bow down and worship you and trust in you. You, Jesus, are the reason I live. You are my only security, my only comfort, my only hope. In you, I I, I trust my whole life, Jesus. Jesus, you had better be telling the truth because I have thrown all my eggs into your basket, and if you're not telling the truth, I have no future. I am nothing because all of my life is bound up in glorifying and worshiping and praising and knowing you, Jesus. I want to see your face. I want to seek you. I want to know you. I want to experience your smile upon me. That's what it means to worship Jesus. A disciple worships Jesus, and they saw Jesus, and they worshiped him. MacTield of, of Magdeburg, we've got a, well, it's not a photo of her because it's 13th century, so they didn't have... This is as close as you're going to get. This is Kodachrome of, of Mechthild of, of Magdeburg. 1200s, female, German, a Beguin. She, she calls us to a passionate pursuit of Jesus and an openness in experiencing the presence of Christ in her life. She says this. She says, I delight in loving him, that is Jesus. I delight in loving him who loves me. And I long to love him, love him to the death, boundlessly love him, love him without ceasing. Oh, be happy, my soul, for your life, Jesus, has died for love of you. Love him, she says, so fiercely that you could die for him. Thus you burn evermore without ever being extinguished as a living flame in the vast fire of high majesty. Make disciples. That's our mandate. People who experience the grace of Jesus and are therefore baptized. People who worship Jesus as disciples. People who also learn to obey Jesus. That's good. Thank you. Um, 
people who learn to obey Jesus in every area of their lives. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the Trinity's name and teaching them to, what? Obey everything I have taught you. A follower of Jesus, a disciple is someone who is increasingly willing to submit to God's grace, to trust God in in daily circumstances, saying, Lord, I want to save myself in this, and I know that means disobeying you, so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to yield my life to you and let you tell me what's right and tell me what's wrong and tell me what to do. I'm going to let you tell me how to live my life. I'm going to let you tell me how to love my spouse. I'm going to let you tell me who to sleep with or who not to sleep with or how to handle my money or how to talk about and treat people who are poor. I'm going to let you rule my life. Uh, lives lived in continual response to God's kindness, believing the gospel instead of yourself, lives offered up to Christ for his use. That's a life of a disciple. When you, when you get out of bed every morning and say, Jesus, I don't know what you've planned for me this day, but I am your charge. I am your soldier. I am reporting for duty. Come what may, I will follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That's a life ready every day to do your Father's bidding. Every day ready to believe your Savior as your boss, as your king, and respond to his grace throughout your life. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's our mission mandate. Jesus is saying, I want you to make one product, disciples. That's Jesus' followers who experience my grace and worship me and then come and submit their lives increasingly to me, even though they're still sinners, to see the power of my grace changing them. And that's because of who Jesus is. And you realize, Jesus, when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that means all. All authority from, from parenthood to dog catcher to emperor of the empire of Rome. Every one of that, every bit of that is Jesus' personal authority that he then hands out in loan. So that he is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, the disciples sing in Revelation 5. Worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is the one before whom every knee will bow, Philippians chapter 2. He is the author of life in the book of Acts in whom all things consist. And this Jesus, by his authority, is saying, Church, I got one product for you. I want you to give me some Jesus followers. And I want everything you do and everything you say and every nickel you spend and every decision you make to be wrapped around this priority and to be furthering this goal. I want you to radically reorient how you do life, how you do family, how you do marriage, how you do parenting, how you do career, how you do finances. Because I want you to live your life on mission. It's why I put you here. I bought you for this very purpose that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his life. This doesn't mean adding mission onto an otherwise full life as one extra activity. It means being on mission wherever you are and be willing to go wherever God might call you. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, I want you to cross every cultural barrier that humanity can give. Because he's talking to a group of Jewish men and women exclusively. 
and telling them that, that I want you to go to the Romans and to the Greeks and to the Scythians, and I want you to go to the Bithynians, and I want you to go to the Armenians, and I want you to go everywhere. Even though you're Jewish, even though they'll think you're weird and you'll be an outsider and, 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 and you're not one of them, I want you to cross every one of those cultural lines that you can find in order to represent me, in order to bring the proclamation of Christ, of the love of Jesus, and the, the power to actually be transformed into a Jesus follower, a disciple. This international, multicultural, multi-ethnic crossing of barriers of wealth and class and gender and background, purposely reorienting our lives individually and collectively as the church for mission. And that means taking the initiative— taking an initiative to represent Jesus. It means doing church in a way that's fundamentally at odds with what American culture says church ought to be. The way American culture does church is it says church is basically a set of programs, uh, kind of a smorgasbord or a, uh, uh, like a salad bar, only it's more like a nice food bar, uh, like Whole Foods food bar. And, and you, you know, give some money and, and attend in order to benefit from these various, you know, entrees and, and whatnot on the food bar. But you fundamentally are a consumer because American culture is a consumer culture. And the church is a consumer product, which you will use in order to get something. And if you feel like you are getting out of it what you want, the programs that you want, the amenities that you want, then you will continue to, to give and support it because it's a consumer product and you're going to keep going back to schnooks if they've got, you know, the best steaks or whatever it is or the best value for your dollar. And Jesus is saying, I want you to repent completely, totally, fully, finally, and forever of any consumer thought where my church is concerned. You're on mission. You signed up for this when you were baptized into Christ. You signed up for this when you said Jesus is my Savior. And I want you to live life not using the church to meet your own consumer demands, but sacrificing your consumer demands for the sake of the church and its mission. How much can you give? Ask not what the church can do for you. Ask what you can do for the bride of Jesus. Purposefully sacrificing yourself for the bride just as Jesus sacrificed himself for her because that is his mission on earth, to sacrifice for the sake of those who don't yet know his grace that they might be liberated from their bondage to death and might enter into the freedom of the life of Jesus. That's living in mission. It means to be a church, a community of love, not just for ourselves, but for our friends and neighbors and associates who don't yet know the grace of Christ. He says, these are your marching orders. Go and make disciples. Self-identifying as a Christian, as a means to bring the welcome of Jesus to others. It means applying the gospel in your daily life and applying it in such a way that you verbally process that application of the gospel such that friends and neighbors and associates can hear you living out and working out the gospel's implications in your life. So some of the best opportunities, get practical here, some of the best opportunities for actually living your life on mission and representing Jesus to those who don't yet know his grace come when the fallenness of this life erupts the most profoundly, even on a day-to-day basis, even the little things. For example, when you're wronged, Let's say in your office or in your workplace, you are slighted 
Somebody says something, somebody overlooks you, somebody hurts your feelings, and, uh, or maybe it's in your neighborhood, somebody accidentally drives over your precious azaleas that you spent all spring watering, and, and you could process it with them. Say, you know, I really love those azaleas, and it's going to cost me something to actually get those looking good again. Or, you know, you actually did really hurt my feelings when you said that in the office. But, you know, Jesus has forgiven me a whole lot bigger stuff than that. So don't worry about it. Now, what did you just do in your workplace or over your backyard fence? You just acknowledged this other person. You also acknowledged that they actually did hurt you. You communicated to them that the gospel is that Jesus forgives sinners. And you verbally processed that in such a way as to communicate your personal acceptance of them rather than judgment when they had done wrong. And then you changed the subject so that you weren't forcing on them a long conversation about Jesus that they might not want to have. You know, if the Holy Spirit's working in them, they're going to come back and say, you know what you were saying about Jesus forgiving you bigger stuff? Like, what's that about? And if the Holy Spirit's not working, they won't. And don't force it on them. But, you know, when you're wrong, do you have the opportunity to represent Christ in a way that is completely non-threatening but welcoming to all? Um, Sometimes, though, it's not you that's been wronged. Sometimes you're going to be wrong. I'm going to be wrong when I blow up at the office. It doesn't happen often, but it has happened. You know, when I run over my neighbor's azaleas, or when you run over your neighbor's azaleas, or you blow up at the office, or say something that you shouldn't have said to somebody that you shouldn't have said it to, and it gets back to them that you gossiped about them, whatever it is, we all sin every day, all the time. We, we, are, we are damaged. Uh, and to go up to them and say, you know, uh, I really want to apologize for that. I was totally wrong. And I'm really concerned about the impact that what I did might have on you. And then you listen as they talk about the impact. And they might get mad. They might be really hurt, but you listen. And you say, wow, I am really sorry about that. You know, I mean, you know I'm a Christian. And when I tell people I believe in Jesus, it's because I really am a big sinner who needs a Savior. Um, And I'm so thankful that you put up with me. Thank you for putting up with me. Can I grab you some coffee? Okay, what just happened? What just happened is that you did what you needed to do anyway, which is ask their forgiveness because you sinned against them. And, uh, and, and, and yet, you also just shared the good news about Jesus, that he forgives sinners, and that you've experienced that. And then you change the subject so that you're not forcing on them a conversation they may not want to have. If the Holy Spirit's working, they'll be back. Uh, you know, when you're wronged, or when you're wrong, or even in a crisis, you know, gosh, when a friend develops cancer, ah, they have, their life is flashing before their eyes. They're seeing years of suffering ahead of them. Or if their child is threatened, or they go through a loss, and you can say, I am so sorry. This was not the way it was supposed to be. If there's anything I can do, please let me know. Would it be okay if I prayed for you? Um, would you like me to pray for you now? now what, just in, what just happened? You just told them that the world was meant to be one way, but it's broken. It's not that way. And they're experiencing that. They get that now. And you offered to bring the grace of God into it to pray for them. Uh, you know, another example. You're on, you know, King's Highway in your, you know, 
late model Toyota Tercel. Not so late. Um, and uh, you're driving to work, and somebody doesn't see that the light's, you know, red and that all the cars are stopped, and they come and they plow into the back of your vehicle. Now, if you're not living on mission, what's going to happen? You're going to be thinking, oh, my gosh, you're going to freak out. What if I'm injured? What if my car's damaged? How am I going to pay for this? What if I don't know that I'm injured? What if I wake up tomorrow and I can't move? My whole life flashing before my eyes. It's terrible. God, where are you? And this is is terrible. God, why would you let this happen to me? But if you're living your life on mission, somebody plows into your tail end. And if you're a missionary in St. Louis, God has just dropped an amazing opportunity into your lap. Wow, somebody just smashed their car into another one. I wonder if they're hurt. I wonder if I could go pray for them. I wonder if they're freaking out. They might be totally unbelieving and wondering about how they're going to pay for it and freaking out and wondering where God is. And I have the opportunity to go and minister to them and, and to tell them, yeah, it's okay. God has forgiven me much bigger stuff than what you just did. He's going to take care of me. I forgive you. Uh, are you okay? Can I pray for you? You know, that's life on mission in the midst of the daily brokenness, just publicly being a Christian and, and processing the normal suffering of life in light of the good news of Jesus and being available to talk or to pray as people want to. It's not forcing anything on anyone, but you can't ask for more than this. This is living your life on mission. Now, why is that so difficult? Living your life on mission is so difficult for a number of reasons. One is that we are easily distracted. Uh, We easily get so focused on the details of our lives that we just fail to see the people that God has put around us, people who are objects of his love. You know, I remember one kid in, uh, he, he, you know, uh, uh, graduated from, from Harvard, and a couple months later, he was working at the McDonald's in Cambridge. And uh, somebody asked him, like, what are you doing here? I'm so sorry. You got a degree. You got a master's degree from Harvard. You're not expecting to be working fast food. And he was like, no, this is great. I've got one Muslim coworker, one Hindu coworker, a couple coworkers who are atheists, one who doesn't know where he is, and another from, from, from Central America who's a Christian and a brother in Jesus. And I got the whole world here, and I get to represent Christ alongside them, not being above them, but being right there in the trenches with them. I get to be a Christian with them. And to show them what it looks like to be on mission for Jesus. Uh, we get distracted. We also get afraid. You know, in, in the U.S., it's typically that we're afraid of introducing awkwardness into relationships, afraid that people might think we're less intelligent if we name Jesus. Um, and, uh, and, and some of you are very highly educated and in contexts where, um, where there are people who will think you're kind of crazy or a nut if you name Jesus. And so we're afraid. But, you know, these early Christians, they were afraid of a lot more than that. They were being kicked out of their families for denying the household gods or for, uh, you know, being kicked out of their synagogues for not really being Jewish enough because they followed Jesus. These were people who were losing careers, some of them losing lives, losing their liberty, uh, you know, being excluded from all of life, some of them even tortured or executed. Uh, they were probably facing some fear as well. We, we get afraid. We also get overwhelmed. You know, some of you are very idealistic, I think millennials are adorable, but 
you can get so idealistic and that you just get overwhelmed because you see all the fallenness of the world and you want to help refugees in Syria and you want to help homeless people north of downtown and you want to be able to, you know, go and end poverty and you want to be able to undermine the systems of racial injustice and bring about racial equity and justice in your city and in your nation and you want to, to be able to stand by the American Indian as they suffer from generations of, of marginal and you want to be able to tell people about Jesus too. And you've got all of these things. You know, you want to help widows in Madagascar and, and you can just get overwhelmed to the point where you can get immobilized because there's just so much need. And this is where it's helpful to point out that in this passage, Jesus is not just talking to the individual Christian saying, Cindy G, I want you to go and make disciples of everyone on the planet. You've got 30 years, get started. Like, no. He's talking to his whole church here. The church has a responsibility to represent Christ in all the earth, but you personally have a zone, a box, an area that God has called you to specifically where he wants you to play a very significant role in in one context. It's a vital role that only you can play, but it's not every role. Realize where he's placed you. You know, in, uh, in soccer... Um, I used to play soccer, by the way, um, when I was five and six. Um, we were called the Dips. It was short for the Diplomats. It was D.C. Um, but, uh, you know, in soccer, I was right full back. I was not good at it. I was short, though. That helped. Uh, you know, in soccer, when a goalie, you know, a goalie has his penalty box. Uh, you know, the penalty box, sometimes he just calls it the box or even my box. It's an 18 by 18 yard area that's marked off with a thick white chalk line right in front of each goal on the soccer field on either end. And most goalies, they call it my box. Uh, and that sounds kind of arrogant in a way, but it's really not because they're understanding that within that box, within the penalty box, the goalie has an amazing privilege and even superpower that no one else on his team has. Within the box, what is the goalie's superpower? He gets to use his hands. No one gets to use his hands. But he has a huge responsibility because he is the last line of defense. Within his box, he is supposed to make sure that not one soccer ball gets through his box. That no one scores a goal against his team. Good goalies have a certain attitude toward their box. When they talk about their goalie box, their penalty box, they say things like, this is my box. No, this is my house. And I take care of business in my house. And it's not really arrogant, not always. It's, it's just a recognition of this special superpower and special responsibility within your box, within your zone, within your area. And every follower of Jesus has a box. You have a zone. You have an area in which God has placed you for special influence and with a special calling. It's the place where you have spiritual influence that you probably don't realize you have. It's partly based on where you live and where you work, your social network of relationships and opportunities, the people that you have in your life to love and to serve, the people that you have in your life to represent Jesus to. Uh, You know, God uses your story, your experiences, even your failings and sins and regrets as a part of your story to help you be a spiritual presence inside your box. And you have the ability to represent Jesus. It's your superpower within your box. That, that's an ability that maybe nobody else has. 
G.K. Chesterton said, we make our friends and we make our enemies, but God makes our neighbors. He gave you the neighbors that you have. You know, get to know them. Invite them over for dinner. Be friends to them. Be present in their life and process your life in their presence as a Christian in light of the gospel. Uh, you know, get in, as involved in their lives as, as they want you. Uh, Tim Keller said that there are some needs that only you can see. And there are some hands that only you can hold. And there are some people that only you can reach. It's hard, though, to be a Christian because we get overwhelmed, we get afraid, uh, you know, we, we get distracted. And, and ultimately, I think it's because we own our mission in an unhealthy way when we think that we're alone. And it all depends on us. It can be very lonely when you're the only Christian in your department or in your workplace or in your building or on your block or in your circle of friends. So, how is it possible How is it possible to do the impossible task, the mission mandate of Jesus? It's possible when you understand in this passage that it is not primarily the mission mandate of Jesus, but it is the missionary presence of Jesus that is promised. It is the ability, the power to do the impossible task. For Jesus says, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus promises, not just for us as a church, but the promises applied to the Bible individually. He promises to be with you in your life, in your car, in your apartment, in your house, in your workplace, in your family, even that end of the family that really doesn't like you. He promises I am in you, and I am with you, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. This is an area where where we, those of us who are Presbyterians, and I kind of am, I wasn't born this way, uh, but, you know, where Presbyterians can tend to be the most unbelieving of Jesus, uh, when Jesus says, I am with you, and I am right now in the room with you. And the hope of glory, the mystery, the hope of glory is Christ in you. That you have been united with Christ. And Christ is therefore in you. That you in 1 Corinthians 6 are a temple of the Holy Spirit, not just collectively, but individually. He says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look down at your chest. Look at your hands right now. Look at your feet. Look at your legs. Do you believe Jesus when he says, I am in there? I am inside here with you. You are always in my presence because I have made you my temple. Do you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are we disobedient with our minds and unbelieving him when he says something that is hard for us to get our minds around? You can't see him. You can't feel him usually. But he's not mistaken. Do you expect him to be working in your heart? Do you expect him to be working through your heart, in the hearts of others? Do you expect his presence? Do you claim his presence? You know, one church revitalization expert said of Presbyterians, he said, your kind of Christian tends to have little practical belief in the presence of the Spirit of Jesus in your lives. And it makes us timid. Without the missionary presence of Jesus, we'll never have the power to take up the mission mandate of Jesus. Uh, You know, when Jesus says, I'm right there with you, 
Christ in us. It was always the case, even in Psalm 41 in the Old Testament. You have, you have set me in your presence, O Lord, forever. Psalm 139, the psalmist asked, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. Psalm 23, in the darkest moments of your life, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because Jesus is with me. Thou, Lord God, Yahweh, you are with me right here, right now. I will not fear. I will not be intimidated. I will not cower. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine and you're my branches. You're an outgrowth of Jesus. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Not just you abiding in Jesus, but Jesus is abiding in you right now. Jesus said in John 14, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him and the promise. We will come to him and make our home with him. Revelation 3.20, Jesus speaking to Christians, speaking to the church, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus in Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Here Jesus says, I am giving you an impossible task, the mission mandate of Jesus to make disciples. And it's costly and it's hard. It's impossible. And the key to doing the impossible is the missionary presence of Jesus inside of you, with you. You are never alone. And a conversation between two people always has a third person in the room, the Spirit of Jesus who is there acting working powerfully. It's the great missionary presence of Jesus here with you right now on mission. And it's the secret to spiritual revival, to get the gospel and then believe the presence of Jesus, to be a holy vessel embodying the living presence of Jesus, the living presence of Christ, his holy presence bursting forth from your body, in, with, and under you. You can't overcome the timidity and all that fear and all that distraction until you believe Jesus when he promises, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you've been. I forgive you. Come to me. Trust me. I will live with you. I am inside of you. My presence is united with you forever. He's with you when you're doing laundry. Practice the presence of God. He's there when you get the text message from your neighbor. He's there on your play date. He's there in your office, on your couch, in your car. You can live your life in tacit unbelief or you can say, okay, Jesus, you are the Christ and you say you are here. Lord, forgive me for disbelieving you so often. I now accept what you say and I receive your promise and I welcome your presence here now. I welcome you into my home. I welcome you into my workplace. I welcome you, Lord Christ, into my car. I welcome you into my relationships and my conversations and my prayers. Lord, I even welcome you into my church. It's the presence of Jesus. Practice it now. The great missionary presence. Jesus says you will do even greater things than me. Do you expect God to work in the people that you pray for? 
Do you expect him to change people's hearts? Do you expect him and pray in such a way that makes you trust him rather than yourself? Do you, do you step out in faith and, and make it your aim to do things that are beyond your human ability to do? Who, who is God calling you to be, be praying for right now? Who is he calling you to be, be a friend to and be present in their life? Do you think Jesus is so small that he can't do something amazing? And Jesus says, I'm always one step ahead of you, preparing the way. That's the point. He's saying, I'm with you. You're not alone. This isn't a metaphor. I'm in the room. You can stop ignoring me. I'm one step ahead of you already, working in their hearts, ready for you to start asking me for them. Then you're going to see. Then you're going to know. It's the power of the presence of God in Christ. In her book, The God Who Hung on the Cross, journalist Ellen Vaughn tells a gripping story of how the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia. It was September of 1999 when Pastor Tui Seng traveled to Kampong Tom province in northern Cambodia. And throughout that isolated area, most of the villagers had cast their lot with Buddhism, many of them with spiritism, ancestor worship. Christianity was almost completely unheard of. But much to Singh's surprise, when he arrived in one small rural village, the people warmly embraced him and embraced his message about Jesus. When he asked the villagers about their openness to the gospel, an elderly woman shuffled forward. She bowed before him, and she grasped Singh's hands, and she said to him, We have been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she told him the story of the mysterious God who hung on a cross. You see, in the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, the brutal communist-led regime, took over Cambodia. They emptied out the cities. They destroyed much of the, the technology. They took people out into the killing fields. Those who survived were forced to work as slave labor in rural Cambodia. Uh, They were destroying everything in their path. And when the Khmer Rouge soldiers finally descended on this rural northern village in 1979, they immediately rounded up the villagers and they forced them to start digging their own graves. And as the villagers had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die. Some of them screamed to Buddha. Others screamed out to, to spirits or to their ancestors. And then one of the women started to cry for help based on a childhood memory, a story her mother had told her years before about a God who had hung on a cross. The woman prayed to that unknown God on a cross. Surely, if this God had known suffering himself, then this was the God who would have compassion on their plight. And suddenly her solitary cry had become one great wail as the entire village started praying to the unknown God who had suffered and hung on a cross. And as they continued facing their own graves, waiting to be shot, the wailing slowly turned into quiet crying. There was an eerie silence in the muggy jungle air. And slowly, as they dared to turn around and face their captors, they discovered that the soldiers were all gone. As the old woman finished telling this story, she told Pastor Singh that ever since that humid day 20 years ago, 
the villagers had been waiting, waiting for someone to come and share the rest of the story about the God who had hung on a cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one who has gone before us. You are the one who is present in in the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, we welcome your presence with us this morning. We thank you for the power of your presence, the power to change the human heart, the power to do what no one has the power to do, to change humanity from the inside out. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for hanging on a cross, for bearing our guilt, for washing us of our sins, and leaving your spirit, not just among us, but in us, as the power of God. Lord, help us to live in the power of the risen Christ, believing you when you say you are here. And you are at work. We welcome you now. We consecrate these elements on this table that by your sacrament you might work in our hearts through faith. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.